Well, we've come to the, the uh, end of this section of Revelation of the seven trumpets. Uh, someone said to me in, this week, these uh, things in Revelation, they're very heavy and they are. We shouldn't deny that uh, the book of Revelation at times is difficult to get our heads around and to understand uh, and it's difficult sometimes to hear what it says because there are heavy things in there, the judgments of God and the sovereign working of God. But we need to wrestle with heavy things if we are to mature in Christ. What would you think if you went to a gym and all of the weights in the gym were only one kilogram or less? And the management said, well, when people come to gym, it's because they're unfit and they're weak and so we just want to give them easy weights to lift so that anyone who leaves the gym can feel they've accomplished something. We would say, no, that's ridiculous. You go to the gym to lift weights that at the time feel a bit too heavy for you, but it's through lifting those weights that uh, your muscles are strengthened and grow. And to use the picture of there's a kid's song, faith is like a muscle, use it and it will grow. Uh, so we need to wrestle with the heavy things because through that uh, the Lord by speaking to us these things will grow our faith and we will become strong and be able to stand firm in him. So the seventh trumpet, as, as we saw with the seven seals, The seventh seal was the conclusion and the completion of the judgments of hope. This seventh trumpet shows us the conclusion and the completion of these judgments of mercy. Once this last trumpet has been blown, the time of opportunity will finish. The separation of the sheep and goats, the Righteous and the unrighteous will take place and this separation will be forever. Uh, As you hopefully remember, I'm not taking this as a series of consecutive events in history but a a big picture, a perspective of God's judgments. But like with the seals, the seventh trumpet is in a sense the final one because it speaks of that final judgement, that final consummation of history. So as, as this seventh trumpet blast, there are voices in heaven, we're not told who they are, maybe the angels, maybe the living creatures, but they're declaring the demise of the kingdom of the world and the eternal reign of Christ in the kingdom given to him by his Father. Now, we need to make sure that we're thinking rightly about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world and the relationship between the two. First, we need to have a proper understanding of this word world. For us, normally world means the physical universe or planet Earth on which we live. The Greek word is cosmos from which we get our word cosmology. In its most literal sense, it does mean universe. Literally, 
the heavens and the earth that God created. But in the Bible, it's often used to refer to spiritual and human powers and authorities that are in play in the heavens and the earth. This is the way that John, who wrote Revelation, often uses that word in his Gospel and in his other writings. For example, 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. The world here doesn't mean the physical creation. We are to love the physical creation because God made it and it's good. But it's this sophisticated system of humanity in rebellion against God and in alliance with the devil whom we have adopted as our replacement father and our substitute king. This is how we should think of this, world, this word world when we think of the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, this is a statement not so much about the quantity of God's love, that his love extends to every person in the physical world. It's a statement about the quality of his love, that his love is so great it's extended to a rebellious humanity a human race who are in league with the devil, who are perishing under his wrath. He loves even the world. So the kingdom of the world is a kingdom that stands in opposition to God's kingdom. But knowing that, we still need to be careful about how we think about it. I think we might mistakenly think that there are two kingdoms within the universe in a battle competing for control over everything. And at the moment it seems as if the kingdom of the world is the dominant one. But eventually, one day, God's kingdom will win the battle. Now, the problem with that view is that we're taking our experience of human kingdoms and we're imposing them on God, expecting his kingdom to be like our kingdoms, as if he was operating according to the principles of the kingdom of the world. And so God, in our thinking, becomes smaller and weaker than he actually is. He's no longer the sovereign creator and ruler over all of creation, but instead... In our minds, he's like someone who's desperately trying to regain territory which he was forced to hand over to the devil. Instead, we need to view it this way. Firstly, that the kingdom of God is not something within creation. It extends to every corner of creation and beyond God has, re- has reigned over all creation from the moment that he made it and he's never lost control or authority over even the smallest part of it. Nothing can take place 
in the universe without his sovereign permission. And that's true when it comes to earthly and spiritual powers and authorities. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate when he stood before him on trial, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then Romans 13.1 tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So we should think of the kingdom of the world more like a mutiny, a rebellion from within that's trying to usurp God, trying to push him off his throne and to take our place on the throne ourselves. But it's a vain attempt. It will never succeed. It's only happening because God, in the mystery of his sovereign purposes, has allowed it to happen. Ultimately, it all serves his higher purpose of magnifying and glorifying his grace. The rebellion of humanity, the kingdom of the world, did not catch God by surprise. His plan from eternity past was always that the Son would enter creation and die to save sinners so that he would be praised not only for his glory but also for his glorious grace, as it says in Ephesians 1. It's his plan that through the redeeming of unworthy sinners he'll be praised for his grace and through the defeat of the kingdoms of the world he will be honoured and worshipped as king over all. We try and wrestle with that in the sovereignty of God. Why did God allow sin? Did he foreordain it? That's not a question for today but we can say uh, everything that happens in this universe is under the sovereign hand of God and accomplishing ultimately his purposes. Now Jesus said to some Pharisees who were asking him, when will the kingdom of God come? The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, some translations have the kingdom of God is within you, leading some people to think that the kingdom of God is something that is internal, just within the hearts of people. But that's not what he's saying. The Pharisees were looking forward to some big cataclysmic event when the Messiah would come, overthrow Rome, set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is already here. It's already come. It's in your midst because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King He's already announced the kingdom of God is at hand, is near. So his arrival wasn't the start of God's reign, but the moment when his reign would be made manifest and clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Jesus also took Psalm 110 and applied it to himself. As he taught in the temple, he said, 
how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, uh, meaning Solomon? So the fulfilment of the messianic promises, promises they said, uh, were all fulfilled in Solomon, the first son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how was he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. To sit at the Lord's right hand is to reign with all authority. And we're told that the risen Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. So his kingdom is established. But there is still that until. Sit at my right hand until there's something yet to happen. His enemies are yet to be put under his feet. So the nations and the devil continue to rage, but their end is sure. So from the very moment of its instigation in the Garden of Eden, the kingdom of the world and of the devil have been in retreat. Even though from our perspective it seems like it's advancing, God announced in Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's the language of conquering the conclusive defeat of an enemy. And ever since then, humanity has been making these attempts over and over to build our kingdoms, to make a name for ourselves, to think that we're in charge of the world and our destiny. When in actual fact, we're told in Acts 17, God made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the rise and fall of human kingdoms have behind them the sovereign hand of God. The kingdom of this world has been permitted to exist by God until all of his purposes are fulfilled. And see what this purpose is. There's the statement about God's sovereignty over the nations. Why did he do it? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He goes on, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's the kingdom of the world, setting up its own gods. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We live in that time called now when God is calling people everywhere to repent with the trumpet call of his judgments and of the gospel as it's proclaimed. The gospel that declares Jesus is Lord. But there is fixed a day when the last trumpet will sound. Jesus will return. 
as the world's judge. And that's what the 24 elders sing of in our passage. Now, at first glance, their words there in verse 17 might appear to contradict everything I've just said, that God's reign, his kingdom has only started at this point. But let's look a little bit more closely at those words. Firstly, see that they address him as Lord God Almighty. Now the word Almighty there is a word called, that in Greek is Pantokrator. Pan means all. And Kratos means dominion or power or strength. It's where we get our word democratic from. It's the people who have dominion in a democratic society, but in a kingdom, the king has dominion. But God is the pan-kratos. He is king over all things. He is sovereign. That's who he is by nature. It's not merely something he does. So, and secondly, that the words uh, begun to reign is actually a, not a good translation. All of the modern English versions have begun to reign here, but the word begun is not in the Greek. Uh, the translators have assumed that it's implied there, but as the good old King James Version puts it, it says simply, you have taken your great power and reigned. Past and present tense is, is the sense of that verb. So this isn't the beginning of his rule, this is simply the assertion of his rule. His rule that has been invisible and not obvious when Jesus returns will become visible and will be obvious to all. Well, how will this happen? Well, we see this in verse 18. Firstly, we're told the nations raged. Now, this is picking up on Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bounds apart, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Really, what I've just been saying is what's there in Psalm 2, the first few verses. Now, these verses were quoted by the very first Christians in Acts as they were praying for boldness to preach the word despite the persecution that was starting. They knew that this raging was expressed when the Jews and the Gentiles together crucified Jesus and that it would continue through opposition to the gospel right through this age. But by quoting these verses means that they also knew the verses that follow. So, your wrath came, and again from the next verses in Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
So the return of Jesus will be the fulfilment of Psalm 2. What will happen at that time? Well, two things still there in verse 18. We're told that the dead will be judged. Now we can take that word dead two ways here. Firstly, those who have physically died, who will be raised up to stand before God. So no one will be exempt. Everyone who has ever lived will be called to account by their creator and king. But secondly, we can understand it as those who are spiritually dead, who have rejected the offer of life by refusing to repent in the light of God's judgments of mercy and the preaching of the gospel. It's those who, while they have a physical life, are really dead because they're cut off from the life-giving favour of God. They're the goats in Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. I urge you, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in him today so that you will not be among those who are judged. The same idea is expressed then at the end of that verse. A time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Human sin in the Bible is described as defiling the ground, the earth that we were charged with ruling over, the earth that we were charged with bringing out its fruitfulness. It began with Adam, whose sin brought God's curse on the ground. Then Cain, who killed his brother so that his brother's blood cried out from the earth, from the ground to God. And ever ever since then, the earth has been defiled by humanity's sin and greed and immorality and arrogance. But on the judgment day, those who have destroyed the earth will be destroyed. The punishment will perfectly fit the crime. Secondly, we're told that God's servants will be rewarded. This is you, if you believe in Jesus, if you belong to him by faith. Remember back in chapter 7, the 144,000 who were sealed on their foreheads with God's name, they were called the servants of our God. Well, what does it mean to be a servant of God? Well, we're given a few words here that describe that. Firstly, they are prophets. All Christians have been given a prophetic ministry by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as we heard about this morning with the kids' talk. Not a select few, but every Christian is enabled and empowered to speak the word of the Lord to one another in the church and to the world around us. Secondly, they're called saints. Every Christian is a saint because we've been set apart and made holy by the blood of Christ and by the washing of the Holy Spirit. And because we are saints, we're then called to live holy lives. 
to display his holiness, to be holy as he is holy. So, a servant of God is one who lives a holy life. Thirdly, we're told that they are those who fear your name. A Christian lives and acts and prays in Jesus' name, meaning on the basis of all that he's done, but also with a reverence, with an honour for him and who he is. We want his name to be hallowed. So a servant of God is one who does everything to the glory of God. And fourthly, we're told both small and great. All Christians are of equal status in Christ before the Father. Whether we are small or great in the eyes of the world, and generally the world considers a servant to be small, we've all been called to humble ourselves, to be servants of one another and of our neighbours, of all people and of God himself. Now there's a pretty good template around which to build our lives, isn't it? We are prophets, we are saints, we are holy and we are all equal uh, called to humble ourselves and serve. We're told that such a life will be rewarded. But be careful, don't see this as salvation by works. We're not saved because we prophesy or live holy lives or fear God's name or humble ourselves as if that was earning our righteousness. These things are the evidence that we are already God's people, justified and saved by grace. So the rewards here aren't salvation. They're the blessings that we will know when Jesus says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and then gives us responsibilities in the new creation. Jesus told us to look forward to these rewards, to store up treasures in heaven. Our Father delights to give rewards to his children who have pleased him by their obedience and their good works. But our good works don't make us his children. We are already that. So when you think of coming before God at the final judgement, by all means, don't think about it with a shred of fear. There will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ on that day. But think of it more than just the absence of condemnation. Don't think of it just as a time when you will be told, not guilty, you're off the hook because of Jesus, but as a time when you will be welcomed in as a beloved, precious servant and child of God, when you will receive your inheritance of the riches of Christ that have been kept safe for you. But we need now to see that this promise of reward is sandwiched between these two statements of judgment. Your wrath came and the dead are judged, and the destruction of the destroyers of the earth. This should cause us to be all the more diligent in wanting to make the gospel known, 
in this today, this time of opportunity before all opportunity is lost at that final trumpet. Finally, we come to the conclusion of the seven trumpets, these judgments of mercy in verse 19. Remember how at the start of this set of seven trumpets, as a prelude, we were taken into the holy place to see the altar of incense representing the prayers of the saints being heard and being answered by God. Now we're taken back in there again, this time to go even further, to actually see the Ark of the Covenant. This is the throne of God which stood in the most holy place behind the curtain. You may also remember that whenever we're drawn to the throne of God, there's lightning, rumblings and thunder coming from it, representing his powerful voice which accomplishes his works in all the earth. This time, his voice shakes the earth with an earthquake and rattles the heavens with hail and the temple is opened not so much for people to go in, but because God is coming out. It's his glorious presence that makes all of creation tremble. This is a picture of his salvation that comes through judgment. Psalm 18 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then what happens next? Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, his thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What's this all about? He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, the nations raged. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What a beautiful picture of God moving heaven and earth to save his people, to ensure that his work of salvation is full and complete. It's a picture that's supposed to bring great comfort to us who know Jesus, but again it's still a warning to those who have heard the call but have not believed. Like I said, the last trumpet will be the end of the age of opportunity. Whether we die first 
or still alive at his return, there will be no second chances, no purgatory, no negotiating with the gate at the pearly, at, with the angel at the pearly gates. It will be the day of justice for all who have rejected his generous mercy. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, we know when we look for that day that's on the horizon, we need to keep one eye on the future and one eye looking back, looking back to that first day when the earth shook and when the ark of God in his temple was exposed and made visible. The temple curtain when Jesus died, was torn in two from top to bottom. The physical temple was opened up. Jesus said, it is finished. The physical temple was now obsolete because atonement had been made for God's people once and for all. They no longer needed him to remain hidden and secret in the holy place. He was now coming out to dwell among his people, the church, the new temple that he's building out of living stones. So unless you're looking back to that first day when the earth shook, you won't be ready for that final day when the earth and the heavens will shake once more. Unless we know the Jesus of the cross, we won't be ready to face the Jesus of the judgment throne. So one last time I say, are you ready? If not, put your faith in him. He is your judge and he is your saviour. Let's pray.